I think when we think of high achievers, a lot of times we think about the actual accomplishments of those people, and that's misguided. So what I think of when and I, how I define it in the book as a high achiever, it is a way of living, right? It's sort of a drive. It's just sort of how you show up to everything. And then you combine that with being an introvert. And that's really what the book is about is this high achieving introvert. Like you've got this drive to achieve, but you want to do it alone or you process things internally. So it's this need to be out there in the world, but also in your head. And it feels very conflicting. Welcome to the Improvement Nerds Podcast, where it's our goal to bring together a bunch of improvement nerds in order to start and improve evolution by providing people with a new tool set, a new skill set, and a new mindset. We're grateful that you're spending time with us today. If you enjoy what you hear, please follow our podcast and subscribe because there's sure to be good content that occurs in these conversations as we nerd out. Hey, Improvement Nerds, this is Tom. I'm back with Katie Rasool. We're going to nerd out and do a bonus episode and follow up to the episode we created together. And we're going to try to keep this short, simple, and a lot of fun. So I wanted to spotlight the book. Like, as soon as I created the episode, I ordered her book and I read it. And as I was reading it, I was laughing out loud. I loved everything about it. And I was just kicking myself because I hadn't read the book prior to bringing her on to the episode. And there was, there's probably a whole different direction we could have taken the episode had I been prepared. So um, I brought her back. I, I begged her. I'm like, please, I made a huge mistake. I didn't read this book before I talked to you. And I need to talk to you again. The audience has to hear about your wit, your humor, and the stories of this book. So will you come back and help me promote this thing? And she was kind enough to say yes. And uh, also, I think we're, we're both totally pumped up to have a redo, because if you guys listen to our episode together, you can tell that the two of us are introverts. Like, the episode starts out a little slow. We're kind of filling each other out, and eventually we find our groove, and, you know, we go forward. So for those who listen to our episode, that first 10 minutes, I'm sure you guys are like, these guys are clunky. Like, yeah, that's introverts trying to figure things out is we're super clunky. We're... <laughs> and studying and trying to find the best way to interact. So uh, now that we've already got that awkwardness out of the way, I think this episode's not going to be as clunky. <laughs> I hope not. And in fairness, Tom, I mean, we were talking about a kind of a different topic and belonging at work, but the book is near and dear to my heart. I'm so glad that you've enjoyed it. And um, I just love sharing some of the stories that go behind it because it's all real stuff that went into the story part and certainly real things that I've done in my life in the how-to section of the book. Yes. Yeah. So in this quick episode, I kind of have an outline in my head and um, we'll probably deviate from that, but I want to be respectful of your time. I know you got a lot going on today. So I want to talk about this, the weight of being a high achiever is kind of where I want to start. And then in the book, that's how you open the book up is like what it's like to carry around this weight and the wrestling with letting it go. And as you make the decision to let it go in the book, you dissect it and you talk about the self doubt and all the pieces and components of it. And you um, label all these like different voices as different characters. And it's a lot of fun. So I want to hit on that. Um, my, one of my favorite parts of the book is where you talk about going into the boardroom and 
how like nonsensible it is like in masculine so we got to bring that out because like I laughed out loud my, my my wife just looked at me she's like you have a problem but I want to talk about that part of it and then end with uh, strategies for people to increase their hell yes quota so is there anything you want to add to the outline no I love that all right let's do it okay so talk to me about the weight of being a high achiever first how do you, in the book you define what a high achiever is and I want to kind of just pull that out, some of those components of what it's like to be a high achiever. Yeah. And I, I think when we think of high achievers, a lot of times we think about the actual accomplishments of those people and that's misguided. So what I think of when, and I, how I define it in the book as a high achiever, it is a way of living, right? It's sort of a drive. It's just sort of how you show up to everything. So if you do a Google search or Google alert for high achievers, it just talks about people with like really high ACT scores. (laughs) And then occasionally you'll see someone that burned out and, um, you know, succumbed to death by suicide. Like that's what it means to be a high achiever. And really it's a way of living and it's just how you show up to everything is really intense. It is very driven. It's incredibly high expectations. And I spent my whole life this way, which is a perfectly okay way to be, but realized that I carried around this weight everywhere I went. And it goes back really as far as I can remember in school. And I've carried this my whole life and never knew it was there until all of a sudden it got so heavy that I really had to examine it. There was no other way around it. And so once I realized it was there and could recognize, wow, I have carried this weight and this feeling of this need to achieve my whole life. And then you combine that with being an introvert. And that's really what the book is about is this high achieving introvert. Like you've got this drive to achieve, but you want to do it alone or you process things internally. So it's this need to be out there in the world, but also in your head. And it feels very conflicting. And so it seems like an oxymoron, but I know a lot of people who are introverts and are also incredibly driven and who carry that weight and probably haven't really thought about it before. Yeah. In the book, um, I, a lot of the things you were talking about resonated of this kind of mask that you were wearing, like, all that this turmoil was happening and you account, you were able to account for this turmoil in some of your stories dating all the way back to dance recitals and coaches and stuff who are working with you when they would ask a question and they would stick with you and make you answer it um, from the inside out kind of thing instead of the outside in of like, well, here's how I think I should say it, but here's really what's going on in my head. I think the one piece was, when your dance troupe, I don't know if I'm using the right words because, uh, but you're, you're probably tracking with me. They were going to do an interpretation of emotion and your dance coach asked you to you know, do a journal entry and just put words on paper of how you perceive the world or whatever was going through your head at the time. And when she came back, she gave you a certain emotion and, you know, like initially you fought it. You're like, no, that's not me. That doesn't label anything that, you know, I try to portray, but in the book, you kind of admit like, oh my gosh, that person pegged me to the wall and knew exactly what was going on in my life. And so what was that emotion? 
panic. It was panic. So I remember journaling that day. We're in dance class. This is in high school. And I had a particularly challenging day and was pretty frustrated and I journaled it. Uh, but this was not an uncommon day, right? This was like probably a couple days a week. You could have caught me and then I would have journaled that way. And so when she comes back and she's like, you're going to dance to this reading of panic. I was like, that's not good. <laughs> I think that's problematic. And I got over it and it was lovely. So I have the book that this reading came from and it's all sorts of emotions. And it's called the book of qualities by J. Ruth Gendler. And I'm writing Hidden Brilliance. I'm writing this book. And I remember this moment because it was like this moment of I'm carrying the weight even then. So I'm like, I have the book. Let me read it. So I go back to panic. And it's never been more true. And I was like, wow, that was just really comes full circle for me. And I think I need to make some changes in my life about how I show up and the amount of weight that I allow myself to carry. Yeah. And in the book, so people have to get it because for you, you kind of share that it was almost like a blossoming moment. Like you said, like in doing that dance and stepping into it and embracing that that's how you oftentimes interact with the world is through this chaos and trying to, you know, manage this conflict where you have this drive to go forward, but this also this, uh, tension that occurs because you're introversion where you want to just stay quiet and not seen and stuff like that. So in the book, you say like the dance really spoke to you and like, you know, you enjoyed it. And so I think a lot of people maybe have these emotions and they never brought them out into the light and, you know, truly stepped into them. And I think you hear some of these words like anxiety and panic, confusion and chaos it's art. It's a form of art. It, it's reality. It's how people sometimes have to interact with the world and learn to embrace that part of how you think and how you operate. And it was just a fun part of the book to go from, oh my gosh, how embarrassing that I can't believe I have to dance panic to like, I'm going to own this. And this is how I, this is a state in my life and this is what's going on and I'm just going to embrace it. And it's such a fun part of the book. I loved that part. There's, oh gosh, I love too many parts of this book. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was fun to kind of relive that as part of this experience. Yes. So one of those, that's one of the stories that I'm like, I'm, I hope we get there in this quick conversation was that that dance. The other part was uh, the boardroom and the emotions that occurred for you when you, so you're, you're in your career you have decision-making authority, you're moving up and becoming a successful leader. And because of that, a lot of your business is conducted in the venue of a boardroom. So you start to talk about what it was like to be elevated and moving up in an organization and meeting so regularly in this boardroom. And the way you describe boardrooms just kind of made me smile. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's so accurate that boardrooms are terribly masculine the, the d- decor in them, the way that the table is structured, the size of the seats, that there's coasters on the tables and stuff like that. So in the book, you kind of talked about the emotions of walking into the boardroom. And I think it was this balance of trying to be a professional and wanting to be 
a successful adult, but also having an inner child as well that you just can't get to be quiet. So talk to me a little bit about the boardroom. Yeah. So I remember, you know, I had a lot of meetings and a lot of boardrooms, but this was the big one, right? This was the, this was the boardroom that the CEO uses and you only go when you're invited. And so it was my first time and I walk in and I'm in the executive boardroom alone. And it's that kind of room with the long mahogany table and expensive executive chairs that are generally made for men that are about six feet tall. And you can't see me because we're on a podcast, but that's clearly not me. (laughs) I'm the youngest one in the room. I am the only woman on this agenda and I'm about five, three. So I walk in and the first one, you know, there. And so I obsessively triple check the calendar appointment on my phone. Like, am I supposed to be here? Is this the right place? Am I actually invited? Right. (laughs) The little imposter syndrome there. So I finally decide I'm as sure as I can be. So I climb into a giant chair and my feet just dangle. I feel like this 10-year-old girl at the grown-ups meeting. And so I, I reach down and there's a lot of levers on those types of chairs. So I pull one. So the chair sinks and then I can finally touch the ground. So I feel like, okay, I've got this. Well, now I'm so low in the chair that the table comes up to my chest. <laughs> and so the rest of the executive team is coming in. I've already you know, feel a little nervous. This is my first time in the boardroom. I'm presenting. And so I start spreading out my papers to try and take up more room or like make my elbows wider in the seat. And it's just this memory of feeling so small and unwelcome. And like, I don't belong here in this moment, whether it was, you know, being a woman, being the only, the, the youngest one. And I, you know, I got over that and had more meetings there, but it was just this moment of feeling small. Um, And I'd be like, where do I put my water bottle on this coaster? I don't understand. (laughs) I don't want to ruin the mahogany. Um, And so it was just this, this beautiful memory of a moment of like all of these things colliding at once for me in the work world. And then starting to think about how I work past that and how I overcome that. Yeah, I I thought that was just a great witty way to talk about what that environment is like and what it feels to be, you know, a woman in that space. And I, I, as I read that book, I'm like, she's so accurate. I've never been in a big boardroom that had any element of uh, feminine touch, like just everything about it spoke masculinity and executive decision making and authority. And I was just like, man, I hope people who read this, who design those rooms, take this to know that it's unwelcoming and it's scary and it doesn't have to be. And I think you started to act and behave differently in that room that really broke the setting down. And you go on in the book to kind of talk about like, eventually you just get careless. You're like, I I don't care. Like, yeah, sure. I should have a nice water bottle, you know, like Dasani or something that is of status. And you you talk about like one, one point you decide, you're like, oh, today I brought a juice box to drink and I have a meeting in this (laughs) and I really want that juice box. So it's coming with me. Totally. Once I got over myself, I was like, you know what? This juice box does not make me bad at my VP job. It doesn't. So 
screw you all. <laughs> like if, if, if this, if this changes your opinion of me, we've got larger problems. So I, I enjoyed that grape juice box. And I remember being like pregnant, um, when I was working in corporate setting and being like, Oh, I don't really want to eat in these meetings, but then like, right. You're hungry pretty much all the time. So eventually it was just like, I was out of cares, right? I would just go wherever and I would eat what I needed to eat and snack. And I'm like, I don't care what people think, Uh, but it took a minute to get there. (laughs) The struggle is real. I mean, the things are not really designed to support women that we just have to accept that. Like I worked in healthcare and 80% of the workforce in healthcare are women and the facility for mothers who choose to nurse and pump there, there's not very many. And, you know, being a a male leader representing a team at the time, it was about 10 women. And we had two women who had children very close together. And, you know, we didn't have, we had shared offices and no one really had a private office at that point. And there was nowhere in the building that had a pumping room. And, you know, like, you would think of all the organizations in the world. So community health network, um, therefore thinking they're doing some really great thing. What they're most known for is they welcome the most babies in the state of Indiana. They have done that for like the last eight years. That's like their brand is women's health and specifically maternity. So you would think an organization that has been so successful because of caring for mothers would have translated that into caring for the women in their organization who are mothers. And that somewhere along the way, they just that fell through the cracks. And, you know, once we shine the light on it, they were like, oh my goodness, I can't believe we didn't even think of this. So then it, it was pretty much overnight. They corrected that problem, but like we, those things aren't top of mind, you know, and you just have to like, call it out in the light, like how silly of us, you know, look at the way this room's decorated or look at how hard it is for someone to, uh, who is a woman to be their natural selves. So your book does a fun job of talking about some of these, the silly things that we do because they're automatic or we're not really thinking about it. And because we weren't thinking about it, we cause this unwelcoming type environment that's oftentimes easily corrected if we acknowledge our missteps. So I love that part of the book is you, you, it's very playful. You wait the way you talk about the, the executive world and all the things that are masculine about it and what it's like to be a woman interacting in that space. Yeah. I mean, you can, it can make complete sense why subconsciously we don't feel like this wasn't built for us. We're not welcome here. Like who who fits these chairs? They are chairs made for giants, right? Like who fits these chairs, really? Um, and so, just taking it through the lens, you can understand why we struggle or we have doubts as we're you know coming up in the world because it feels constantly like there's these hidden cues that this wasn't built for you. Um, and some of those voices are helpful, and some of them aren't. Um, like you mentioned in the intro and, and my own personal quote unquote board of directors is my favorite chapter in the book and really outlines who are those voices or what are some of the things that we're saying to ourselves. Thank you for getting us there. I was like, we have to talk about the board of directors. And in the book, there are several board of directors that exist that are rolling around in your head. And there's, 
every one of them is relatable. Like, as I read it, I'm like, holy crap, I have an IGEL also. I, you know, and I never thought to wittingly name the voices in my head. And I, you say, like, you have to. Like, you have to pinpoint them and you have to name who they are and understand what role they play in order to make decisions about do they stay in that role? Is that voice, is that talk style helpful? Or do I need to uh, ask that individual to leave the premise and tell them to shove it? Or can I give them a new role? So the way that that chapter unfolds is you're talking about all these different talk styles that you have going on within your head. And some of them are your biggest cheerleaders and some of them are the heaviest anchors. So I want to talk about a couple of those characters. And the first one we meet is Bridget. Bridget. Yeah. So as an introvert and we process things internally, right, we tend to not just have a voice in our head, but a whole board of directors talking in our head. And so it's a really common, as a coach, it's a common coaching activity that we think of like, what is the deepest, darkest gremlin? Um, And then name it so that we sort of take some of the power away. So that's how I met Bridget. As Bridget is the I'm not enough voice. You're not doing enough. You need to do more. You're not, you're not prepared enough. Um, and so Bridget, as in Bridget Jones, because I want people to love me just as I am. Like I am enough. That's kind of the thought process behind it. So we met Bridget and then realized over the course of time, like I hear a voice talking that's not helpful. And I don't think it's Bridget. Who is that? So that's where the, I was like, it's Nigel, and he's this responsible one, right? He's like an older British man wearing a tweed jacket with like the elbow patches and um, some glasses and just sort of like a frown, like the really, the fun police, right? Like the, the responsible one. And so I started to recognize all of the places where Nigel was coming up. In my head, I would make a big purchase or, um, I don't know, I just always had to be the responsible one. And in some cases, I realized, like, that wasn't serving me anymore. So I started, was like, who else is in there? So I was like, I got to name all the voices. And it's sort of my, you know, they say as part of your own career development, have a personal board of directors. So this is my personal board of directors that's in my head. And all of them are named, you know, kind of. I don't think I've ever actually talked about this on air, like what some of them are named after, but most of them are named after real people that made sense to me. And I realized that not all of them were necessarily negative. Like there's parts of me that are confident and fierce and smart and more than enough. And I really wanted the board of directors and the characters who are around the table to represent the entirety of myself. So I had to go through this exercise of not just understanding who Bridget was, what Bridget was saying, or Nigel, but who some of the other characters are that are intuitive and fun and creative that make up the collective me. So that's the that's the chapter that includes all of those characters. It's brilliant. It, there's so many characters in there that resonated with me. And the way you respected each of them, like you, there, you, it wasn't anger or resentment 
in some ways you walk us through the process of recognizing that these voices are trying to protect you. And there's a part in the book where you and Bridget have a conversation and um, I think you reference Marie Kondo. Kondo, Kondo yeah. Mm-hmm. So the condoing idea of thankfulness and gratitude. So you express gratitude for her, you give her a hug and you thank her for what she's done. And you said, I don't need that anymore. Like that does not serve me well. And I need you to take on a different role. And in this conversation, like you really get to see Bridget's personality come out and she's like, well, you know, like, I'm really concerned about you. And like, I'm, I'm just trying to protect you. Like, yes, I understand that Bridget, but it's not helping anymore. And I need you to be my biggest cheerleader. And she's like, but what does that look like? Can I, can I use pom-poms? And you're like, yes, of course you can. So it, it's just like you're in her that that part of is really beautiful of having this conversation. Cause a lot of people bury these voices and don't understand that these, these voices going on, they really did serve a purpose and you shouldn't be angry or resentful for them. You should uh, thank them and express gratitude towards them and try to um, leverage them in a way that allows you to take that next step. So talking about Bridget and you, you say, okay, like she agrees to this role, but she doesn't always stay in it. Like her tendencies are to always do that. And you, you said like, you know, she's in the car now, but she's like way in the back. And if she ever tries to get in the driver's seat, you listen to her for that brief second and say like, no, you're, thank you for that insight, but you're not the co-pilot today. Please go to the back seat. So just the way like you share these stories and the conversations you have with the voices in your head, I thought it was so creative. And Nigel was like one of those people, like when I texted you, I'm like, Nigel is in my head too. And she's like, yeah, who invited that? You said like, who invited that guy to the party? What a fun suck. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's good to be responsible until you suck all the air out of the room. So then I'm like, okay, Nigel's here. Welcome, Nigel. Thanks for gatekeeping. And you're reassigned. (laughs) Put you over here. Thank you. And then you name a handful of the other roles and I want people to get the book and learn, learn about them. Like there's a technical person who's like kind of an IT guru. Steve. Yeah. Steve Jobs is right. Like Steve is just, doesn't Steve sound like technical support? Um, Like, yeah. So it was sort of like Steve Jobs was the, was like the vision of why his name is Steve. Michelle is like the force to be reckoned with. That's, that is based off of like, who is my force to be reckoned with? That's Michelle Obama or um, Deanna. You'll love this one. This is nerdy. So Deanna, if you remember or ever watched <laughs> um, Star Trek next generation, <laughs> Deanna is like the feeler in the show. And she like feels people's energy which I do a lot in coaching and is just like a natural function for me, but that's why she's named Deanna. Um, and then Wendy is actually, Wendy's the creative one. Wendy is actually based off of the dance instructor who gave me the assignment to journal and then assigned me panic. <laughs> that's her. So that's, she, is a, she is a part of me. I, you, you could tell that Wendy was an important role in your life because all the other ones, you kind of talk about what they do, but you don't like 
they're mentioned, but Wendy, you go a little bit deeper and you and Wendy go into your closet and look around and like, Wendy's like, look at all this black. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, (laughs) so that part's a lot of fun too. Cause like you and Wendy, you know, pretty much take this closet and bring some vibrant colors into it and have a lot of fun in that part of reorganizing your closet and moving the bright colors from the back to the front. So because you spent a little bit of extra time with Wendy, I I started to assume Wendy's a special person to you. And also just the cover of your book, um, because you talk about yellow pants with Wendy, I think you reference. And then I look at your book and I'm like, look at all that yellow. I'm like, hmm. Wendy, I think, was most lost. Like, I used to dance and sing and do theater. It was a triple threat dance, sing, act when I was younger. And then I just got all corporate. And I think that creative side of me was missing. Like, my inner child and what brought me joy and um, just was, was gone and kind of smashed out. And so I think that at this point when I was writing the book that she was the one I was missing the most and it probably needed the most resuscitation in my life. And so I think that was a moment, right? Writing the book is for me, like this was healing and informative for me to go through this process. And so hopefully then it's enjoyable or educational for someone else as well, but it's as much for me as anyone. Yeah. I'm a sample size of one. Um, but you know, maybe we'll get more data and you probably have got, I hope that you've got people who've reached out and said like this, this worked for me. Thank you for writing this book. I'll tell you, thank you for writing this book. It is really well done and it's helped me a lot. So thank you for that. And thanks for you know, talking about the board of directors and Wendy and kind of sharing that, like she was the most lost. It was going to take the most amount of energy to bring her back. And I've, I'm going to use that to kind of segue into this last piece. So being creative and free spirited is part of like your hell, hell yes attitude or the hell yeah attitude. So in the book, as we transition away from the board directors, you start to talk about your personal goals and you're like, what would it be like if I increased my hell yes threshold? And how would I go about doing that? You know, I'd have to let go of this weight. What would it be like to say goodbye to this weight and to embrace all of this, all of this joy that I want to experience for myself? So you talk about a couple of ways that you did this, and I'm sure you use some of these strategies and techniques with the people you coach to help them increase their hell yes quota. So I want to close this episode out with maybe one or two ways you increased your hell yes quota um, maybe that you still practice to this day and that you still recommend to others that they can start to practice in order to increase theirs. Yeah, I think the most important factor of that for me is being able to get really still and be able to listen to your reactions and how you feel in your body. So I get a call, let's say I get a call from someone who says, we would love to have you come in and do this consulting for X, Y, or Z for our company. And if I pay attention in that exact moment, how I feel, I can tell right then it's either a hell yes or it's a no. And if it's like a, well, maybe, or, or I spend myself you know, time trying to convince myself why it might be a good idea, it's a no. <laughs> because 
what ends up happening is you convince yourself it might be a good idea. You go do it. You remember that your gut was right and it's not a good idea. And then now you are spending your time doing work that just sucks all your energy instead of the things that are, you know, if you get another phone call, I had a call, a phone call from a friend who said, Hey, I would love to have you MC this disrupt HR disrupt event, which I had already spoken and done a disrupt talk loved it. And I was like, hell yes. Yes. Like I've always wanted to MC something. I think that would be awesome. And then I was like, maybe I should ask when, when it is and be sure that I'm available. But yes, that was the hell yes. Versus if I have to think about it or convince myself. And so I've become very clear on that in my body and can tap into how I feel and and understand. And sometimes it's really hard. I'm like, oh, it's a no. I want it to be yes, but it's a no and have to have hard conversations or make challenging decisions. And that hell yes, like, you know, doesn't matter when it is, where it will be, you will be there. That's what that feeling is. And so if you can understand what those feel like and be really aware of them in the moment, I started choosing work that was a hell yes and saying no to stuff that wasn't. And that can be scary, but it also meant that my cup was being filled constantly. I was working on things that energized me instead of feeling resentful. I think that one, that learning to listen to things other than your thoughts was where I was motivated to like, I've got to introduce Katie to Rachel because you talk about the gut and I'm like, oh, she, I wonder if she knows about the Enneagram. And you're like, yeah, I know about it. I'm curious about it. And I'm on my journey to learn more. And I was like, when you talked about that, you were, it was obvious that you were in tune to what you were thinking, what you were feeling and what your gut was saying. So I was like, what great advice, what a great example to bring to people to say, like, when you are given information, you think about it you experience an emotion and a feeling about it. And then your intuition, something in your body, they, they say it's the gut, but really it's a, a, a sensation in your body that is having a reaction. Either your fist tighten up, your jaw clenches, your shoulders stiffen, you tighten your abdomen as if you're preparing to uh, embrace or fight against conflict. So, you know, I remember Rachel walking me through this exercise. She was just simply giving me scenarios and she's like, what's going on in your body right now? And she's like, you have to learn to interpret your body's reaction to situations. And when you are able to know, like you're letting down your guard and you're welcoming of the idea, that's your gut saying, trust your intuition here. There's joy on the other side of this. And I think that helped me say yes when I wanted to say no because a lot of people overthink it and they say no when they should be saying yes versus what you're saying is the hell yes is immediate. And if you ever start to think about it, that's the no. Yeah, totally. And and there's a difference between, I think learning the difference between fear and it's the wrong thing is a really important part of that. So if I feel like, oh, I don't know, is it just because I'm afraid of my greatness? Like I'm afraid of succeeding. Um, that's one thing. And it feels very similar, but it is different than like, no, this is not my path. And so once you can get still and just differentiate between the two of those, 
then like you've got a system, you've got a decision-making system, right? Like it's hell yes, or it's no. And I'm going to examine that. No. And it's yep, still a no. Uh, but sometimes I go, no. And I'm like, you know, um, if I wasn't afraid, like it would be a hell yes. And I'm like, okay, I will do it. So that alone has changed the way I live. It's as simple as that it takes practice, but it's worthwhile. Thanks for sharing that strategy with us. And it it's people who want to do that. Like, Oh, I can agree with that. I'm going to give it a try, try it once. And, and it is complex. Like, I think people, when they work on themselves, they think it's going to be quick and like ripping off the bandaid and like, you know, I'm going to be, you know, uh, totally in tuned to me overnight. Cause no, it's, it's a journey to say the least. Um, are there, is there any other, maybe one more strategy or tactic that you have that you want to leave us with before we close out our episode? Sure. If I would give one more, I would say um, maybe the idea of, really stretching outside your comfort zone by doing things that scare you. And I um, was someone who never realized I never took risks or never took any risk or never did anything that I thought I might fail at because, right. So I just shot for the clouds instead of the moon because I knew I could get to the clouds and I always looked awesome. Like I always met my goals. How great. And so I started actually increasing my appetite for risk or doing things that scared me really small. Like I hadn't ridden a bike for years. And I, one day just hopped on my husband's bike and I rode around the block and I felt, it felt exhilarating. Like I did that. Yay. And so it's just doing things like that, that help push your threshold for taking risks, um, being willing to say yes to something even though you might fail, because especially as a high achiever, like that, that was never okay. It was never okay to fail. And it's pushing myself towards the threshold to be able to not set as small of goals, set bigger goals and be okay, not achieving them. So that would be my last uh, parting wish for all of the listeners. Thank you for coming on and letting me nerd out with you about your book. As I'd said, I love it. Um, thank you for writing it. And thank you for coming on and giving us just like the, a brief summary. There's more board of directors in there. You have more stories of the conflict of wanting this to be reality, but then the hesitation and all of these voices talking to you and playing out certain situations in your life and the vulnerability you have in the book and sharing your stories was a lot of fun to, to just kind of look at and relate to like, Oh my gosh, I, I remember someone who saw me for the first time and wouldn't let me hide from this. So you, you bring that out. And then, you know, in the end here, you resource people with effective tools and good examples of how they can start to embark on this journey and really become a more whole and complete self. So thank you for coming on and sharing a couple of examples and thank you for writing this book. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate you. And this was fun to talk about it. And I'm so glad it was helpful and that you resonated with it. And um, my hope is that it's helpful for others as it was for me just processing the book myself. So thank you. Yes. Thank you. Enjoy your day. You too.